Father, we meet now under the word of the King of Kings. We acknowledge the righteous, heavenly, eternal, perfect, just, merciful rule of Jesus Christ. And we come now under his word. Open our ears to hear it. Make us to submit to us. Make us to know the joy of his kingdom. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, take with me a copy of God's word, either your own or the one in front of you that we've provided, and open up to the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. We'll be in chapter 62 to begin, but we'll skip like a stone from chapters 55 through 66 before we're done. Well, the original plan was for us to finish up this book ahead of the, the new year, but alas, we had a snow day, and so we have one chapter or one section left. I know some of you have been waiting for this last sermon in Isaiah, and I also know that some of you have forgotten that we had a section left in Isaiah. One dear brother I work closely with forgot that we have a section left in Isaiah. Well, in God's providence, we have had this waiting period, and as it turns out, today's passage is actually for awaiting people. Isaiah began his book, you'll remember, with a vision of a city in ruins, a city desolate, a city forsaken, the city of man, Jerusalem trusting in her human strength. Now to a people who wondered if God ever would finish what he promised, complete what he started, these beautiful, beautiful words. We'll read verses 1 through 5 and then verse 12. For Zion's sake... I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married, for as a young man marries a young woman, so your sons marry you, and as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Verse 12, and they shall be called a holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. These beautiful, comforting, confirming words of God's completed work come right in the middle of 11 chapters of the same that formed the last section of Isaiah's prophecy. And the overall message of this last last section is this, the king is coming and he's worth the wait. The king is coming and he's worth the wait. I wanna preach this last portion of Isaiah to you directly, but I wanna do that without weighing the whole of the sermon down with a variety of intricate explanations as to how this particular image or this particular promise or text comes over to you. So allow me to weigh the whole sermon down at the front end with a little bit of that. Three audiences, two comings, and 
and one message, three audiences. This is important to know. As you read a book like Isaiah, you may feel like you're in a maze. Uh, You're not alone. (laughs) Uh, The book is kind of uh, maddening. If you're reading through the Bible and you read through Isaiah, you know you're reading through something incredible, but you you don't get it. Well, one of the keys to, to getting it is understanding the three the three audiences that Isaiah has. Let me rehearse these for us. And chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah wrote to the Jerusalem of his own day, a Jerusalem in sin, in spiritual ruins. Her kings would not trust the Lord. And as sure as Adam was booted from the garden, so these people would be booted from the land and exiled to Babylon. Yet through the word of this prophet Isaiah, there was hope for the people. The God of unapproachable holiness removed Isaiah's guilt, and that was a foretaste of what he would do for his people. He would remove the guilt of his people and make them new for himself. And Isaiah promises that a shoot would spring up, a faithful king, a child born of a virgin, his name called Emmanuel, God with us, a prince of peace, a cryptic but a beautiful promise of a sign to come and one to save. Well, in chapters 40 through 55, Isaiah wrote to that future generation that was exiled from God's land and presence. He wrote in those chapters to that exiled generation with good news of comfort, comfort. God is building a highway and he is coming for you. He will come and get you and he will bring you home to Jerusalem. Even better, he will deal with the sin that landed you in this mess because if he doesn't deal with the sin that got God's people exiled from the land. And the same thing that got us exiled from the garden will get us exiled again. And we will never be right with God. He has to deal not only with our geography, getting us near to him, he has to deal with the sin that separates us from himself. And he would do it. And what would it take? He would crush his innocent servants so that his guilty people may not only sing to him, but be his servants. He would more than remove their guilt, but he would renew them from the inside out. And they would return to the land. And the city in ruins would be a city rebuilt. Jerusalem would undergo a renovation of heavenly proportions. Of course, all this is a shadow of what is to come that God will, will do for us. The church, the heavenly new Jerusalem, as we'll see. Well, now in chapters 56... Through 66, Isaiah writes to yet a third audience. He writes now to the future generation that returns to Jerusalem. Isaiah has prophesied that Cyrus would be raised up from Persia and would uh, defeat Babylon and then send the people home, a miraculous, impossible thought. Sure enough, it, it indeed happened just like that. Their expectations for their return because of all these promises were rightly very high because of God's promises, but their experience upon return was surprisingly hard. For while they were gone, foreigners had moved into the land, which was a little awkward, and they had to figure that out. Then Persia, who sent them back to their land, was also the new neighborhood boss. Limited resources and the scorn of surrounding nations made stability and flourishing in the land nearly impossible. And saddest of all, Jerusalem's king and temple could not touch the beauty of former days. And so there is just weeping on the part of generations who knew what they were missing. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah all give us this background of this this disappointing return. Three audiences. 
Now, two comings. Isaiah promises a king to come that will bring all of God's promises to pass. But it happens in two stages. And that king doesn't come with the return of his people to Jerusalem. No, it comes with the arrival of that babe, Emmanuel, a a child born of a virgin. It, It comes in the first coming of Jesus who comes to bring the inauguration of God's promises. And this is key. For when Jesus comes, the full fulfillment and realization of God's promises is not come. He comes once to begin God's new creation. He comes again to bring the full fulfillment of all of God's promises. And you and I live in between. We live as a people who have received the promise and the work of the suffering servant who takes away sins. And yet you and I know we struggle with sin. Our own and the curse of sin and sin all around us. It doesn't feel like God is done. And surely he is not, for we await the return of our king. And for that reason, these words for awaiting people, although from a slightly different perspective for us this side of the cross, are words for us too. For you and I live between the suffering servant on one page and the return of the king on the other. And you and I live in a world filled with violence, unrelenting, hopeless, helpless, trouble. Don't watch the news this week or you'll get depressed. There is no hope in man. Our best solutions and leaders make a terrible mess. And so we have this last section of Isaiah shouting this message. Our king is coming and he is worth the wait. And 11 chapters, he fills our vision with the God who will build his new city and finish what he starts And I'm going to pluck an image out from each of these chapters for 11 assurances that God will indeed do it. 11 images for 11 assurances. Our king is coming and he's worth the wait. Our first assurance. Turn to chapter 56. You're welcome merely to listen to verse references in the scripture throughout the sermon. You're welcome also to try to chase some of these texts with me. We'll be moving a chapter Per point. The first assurance, our Lord, he comes. Our king comes with open arms. He comes with open arms. Are you ever insecure that maybe God doesn't see you or remember you or notice you? Maybe that he's rejected you. Perhaps you find yourself an oddball. You feel alone even at church. Maybe you think some feature of your family history, ethnicity, or social status would put you on the outside of God's plans. He has anticipated your hesitation. Verse three, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuchs say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who chose the, choose the things that please me, who hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord who, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain. And make them joyful in prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer 
for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. God's arms are open to anyone who will come to him by faith. Anyone. He is an inclusive God, not inclusive in the sense that everyone will be safe regardless of how they come to him. That is not the case. He's inclusive in the sense that everyone who comes to him, who joins themselves to him will be safe, who comes on his own terms, which of course is through Jesus Christ himself, the Lord of the Sabbath in whom we find our rest. So don't say to yourself that the Lord will reject you if you're joined to him in Christ, brother and sister. Oh, he will not. You may feel like you don't belong. We're a kind of educated church. You may not have as much education. You sure don't need it. It was said that the apostles were uneducated men. We're a mostly Anglo church, but Jesus didn't die for mostly Anglos. We're a largely middle-class church, but Jesus didn't die for a middle-class people which means that the only relevant thing about you and me when we enter this room with respect to our relationship as brothers and sisters in this church before God is that we are joined to him. So don't hesitate in coming to him and don't believe any thought that he'll forsake you when he comes on account of any feature of yours. If you're joined to him, you're safe. When Jesus came, he came with open arms to all who would come to him, to tax collectors and sinners, Jews and Greeks, male, female. And when he comes again, he will open his arms to gather men and women from every nation to himself. It's gonna be a beautifully diverse crowd. Let's pray for more of it. He comes with open arms and he comes, a second assurance, he comes to share his home. Chapter 57, we'll read in verse 14 in a moment. There are certainly places you just don't imagine setting up home. In Chicago, there was a street, LaSalle Avenue, years ago when Christy and I were there in college. On one side of LaSalle Avenue, the Gold Coast, some of the the most expensive properties maybe in in the country, certainly in the city. And a a block away, Cabrini Green is no longer there. One of the most dangerous places at the time in the country, low-income housing for sure. A block separated them and they did not mix. And those in the high-rises did not think or give thought to staying with anyone a block and a half away. And those in the low-income housing may have dreamed about staying in, in a place so high, but maybe they didn't even set their minds to it for it was so out of reach. They couldn't if they tried, blocked by fences and locks and and codes. Now listen to this, 57 verse 14, and it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. He says, get everything out of the way. I want nothing stopping or slowing your journey here. Get the cruise and smooth the road. He wants you with him. And there are not a few days, but for an endless days. And consider how different we are. He is high and lifted up. The Lord and King of Isaiah 6 
before whom you cannot stand and live in your sin, but he deals with that through his servant. And his name is Holy. And we are none of those things. In chapter 59, he'll speak this way of us. Our feet run to evil. They're swift to shed blood. Our thoughts are only iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in our highways and the way of peace we do not know. And there's no justice in our paths and no one seeks God. Yet he dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. With those who know they have no business dwelling with him. In fact, friend, the first step in becoming a Christian, the first step to safety with God when you stand before him at death is to admit you have no business dwelling with him. And yet he then is pleased to dwell with those who are of a lowly and a contrite spirit. And so we call our sin for what it is. It's one of the things we do when we pray, when we read scripture and we sing every Sunday morning, we call our sin for what it is so that we might teach ourselves to be lowly, so that we might have a contrite spirit before the Lord. We do not come to church to puff ourselves up, to stand tall as great people. We come to church to remember who we are as dust and as sinners and our great need before a great God who does take us in when we humble ourselves. Then he says in 57 verse 19, peace, peace to the far off and to the near. Oh, the apostle Paul will quote that. And he'll say that this this peace for those who are far off and those who are near comes by none other than the blood of the cross of Jesus and healing by the resurrection from the dead for a new humanity. And it's for those who know they need it. I pray you know you need it. When Jesus came, he dwelt among us and even now by his spirit, he is among us. And when he comes again, the father will say the dwelling place of God is with man. And we look forward to that have assurance. He makes his dwelling with us. And in this place, we won't be off on our own to fend for ourselves. A third assurance, he comes with a feast. Chapter 58, verse 13, he comes with a feast. What's on the menu for those who make a home with the Lord? He's speaking here in Sabbath terms to to Israel that that every seven-day rhythm of identifying with their maker and submitting to him and resting in him and delighting in him. We live in an ongoing Sabbath in Jesus. Listen to, to these words in verse 13. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, me a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's interesting in the first few verses of this chapter, he's rehearsing for the people how much they loved to fast. That is to deny themselves the the sustenance or pleasure of food in order maybe to please God. Well, God is so much more interested in us feasting in his delights and feeding us with his joy than he is with us depriving ourselves and feeling more spiritual for it. For these people would deprive themselves so as to feel more religious and yet they would be cruel to one another. 
And so we find that when we delight ourselves in the Lord and when we honor him and when he is our delight, so we feast on the abundant, sufficient wonder of his promises. We feast on the food of the promises to Jacob, he says here. So friends, we find our delight in the Lord and we pursue that with one another daily and, and when we, we meet. And the Lord comes with a feast. When Jesus came, he did not fake his obedience or, or pretend to be religious, but fully delighted himself in the Lord, showing us where true delight comes from and even making that true delight possible. For when he comes again, we will share with him in the feast of the lamb and the full enjoyment of all that he has promised will be ours. And every line on the page of this book of Isaiah, some of it cryptic and some of it clear, will come to pass and we will know it firsthand. Find your delight in him and believe it. Have this assurance that you will not fend for yourself or be off alone in a corner in his new creation, but you will be at his table. And so we will eat from his table to remind ourselves of that later in the morning. A fourth assurance, he comes clothed with armor. Chapter 59, verse 14 and following. Oh, this Christian life does not always feel like a feast. Sometimes it feels like a fight. Well, look at what the Lord is wearing. Seeing our need, we'll start in verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with, in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he'll repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, and to the coastlands he'll render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression, declares the Lord. Here's a picture of God in radiant, regal, saving, armed, fighting glory. And he is strong enough to come and get you. You turn from your sins and you confess them, come to him. He saves you from them and he'll save you completely. He's a righteous God and his righteousness is his breastplate. And he is able to secure you because of the suffering of his servant for himself without compromising his righteousness. You know, it's chapters 60 and 62 in this large section that we're in that form the center of the entire section. It's how Hebrew writers often landed a point of emphasis. They put it right in the middle. And in this little section, we get a kind of a ramp up in chapter 59 to chapter 60. He's saying, God is getting his gear on. He's saying, I'm dressed and I'm coming. The king is coming. Capital R, a redeemer is coming. This is how it works, by the way. God, throughout the book of Isaiah, promises that he will come. I will come. And yet he also promises this king will come. A redeemer will come. One will be born of a virgin. A servant will come. And then he sends his king. And here we receive our third image of the Messiah in this book. We saw earlier in the series that he's, he's a child born of a virgin, a branch from a stump. We saw him 
as a suffering servant. And now we see him as a coming king. This promise of a redeemer is an indication that all that God promises he will do, he will do through one who is his king who will come. He says in the verses following with with a new covenant. And so Jesus says, this is my blood and this is my body, the new covenant of my body. This is the king who will come, a fifth assurance. And when he comes, he will rise on us like the sun. Chapter 60, verses one through three. We should all know something of this illustration. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise on you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now verse 19, he says, the sun will be no more and the the light by day nor brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. It is a cold world. And it is a dark world. I grew up with my mom and dad saying, it's a cold world out there. That would remind us of that. Uh, I'm thankful for my home. It wasn't cold in my home. It wasn't dark in my home. We we're sinners. I was a great sinner. It was chilly and it was dark. But not like it can get the full weight of the curse outside the house when you grow up and get sent out. And we would observe the coldness of life in the lives of others at times and mom and dad would prepare us for what was coming. Life in this sin-cursed world is terribly hard and you know it. Lit up by the light of their king though with the heat of his sun and the brightness of his rising, God's people are a light. You remember in our last sermon that Israel's job was to be a light to the nations, but she was blind as the servant of God. How much hope is there for the world if the light of the world is blind herself? But then God sends his true Israelite, his true servant, who is a light of the world, who then takes on the sin of the people. And now it says here, arise, shine, for as the king comes, he rises on his people so that his people now become a light. The only way to find light in your dark heart is for God to shine it and to make you to light, to rise upon you as the sun. And he will be so bright, spiritually speaking, that you will need no sun to light your day. For the Lord God will be your glory. Light with this beauty and its life-giving warmth both exposes darkness and attracts. When Christ came, he said, I'm the light of the world. And when he comes again, he will put away darkness for good. At the coming of Jesus Christ, there will be no cold and there will be no shadow. All over, only light and warmth at the radiance of Jesus. A sixth assurance. And perhaps one you need today. Chapter 61, verses one through four. He comes to bind up the brokenhearted. Friends, he will utterly reverse the physical, the emotional, the spiritual, the social circumstances of his people. 
61 verse one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, the king says, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins and shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. This here and this Layering and layering of reversals is a picture of a complete and total setting right of all things. Captured in this line, I'm holding out for you, binding up the brokenhearted. You will have no more broken heart when our king comes. The hurt you know, the poverty you know, the imprisonment you know will be all over. Swallowed up in him. Death will be under his feet. No more crying. A seventh assurance. He comes to give us a new name. Chapter 62. We have to read these words again. Verse four. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. For you shall be called my delight is in her. Verse 12. The holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, Sought out is your name in a city not forsaken. Well, how beautiful is that? The message of the Bible is the message of a God who seeks out an otherwise forsaken people, who seeks out those who have run from him, who finds them and saves them and pays for their sins and takes them in. We're forsaken because of our sin. We're desolate because we've, we've preferred alienation from God, but he will not have it. And in Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and his resurrection from the dead, he makes it possible to draw those who are far away to himself. And he calls us not only a holy people, redeemed of the Lord, but my delight is in her. He calls you, church, my delight is in you. That's your name. I'm sure there's a church somewhere with that name. My delight is in her church. There's some weird names for churches out there. I actually have a list, a little list of really weird names for churches. But this one would be biblical. You know, this is our identity in Christ. Who are you in Jesus? Who are you in Jesus? You know, Jesus hasn't given us just one little answer. He hasn't given us just one image. Uh, Because you can't capture it in one image. Here he piles on names. Don't miss it. Don't miss what God calls you. Don't miss who you are. It all starts here. And it really had nothing to do with you. (laughs) Uh, This side of the cross, in the fullness of God's revelation, friends, even our contrite spirit, even our lowly, humble approach to God is spirit born. God has sought you out. If you're here and you're his, he chased you down. He wooed you to himself. He drew you to himself and he made you his. 
and he calls you, my delight is in her, a city not forsaken. That's a seventh assurance. You get a new name. Now an eighth assurance. He comes with blood spattered apparel. Uh, This one is of a different feel than the last one. Chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. He comes with blood spattered apparel. What is this? Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger and I made them drunk with my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. The twin message of the prophets in this part of our Bible is of great judgment and great salvation. If you run from God, if you harden your heart against him, if you sit here with a clenched jaw, if you pretend you're on his good side because of your fasting or your religious rituals or depriving yourself of this or that, while you do not delight in him, while he is not for you your redeemer, without being yourself contrite before him, there's no safety for you. There's none. And I don't say that because I like this. I say that because I believe this. And this is really scary. And I plead with you to turn to the son. I plead with you to turn to Christ. For in the end, he will save his, not on account of our or your good works, but on account of his own shed blood. And if you won't trust his blood for the forgiveness of your sins and and all these promises, you'll have only what you've got when you stand before him and he'll see that you're judged for your sin. And I don't want that. So turn to him. It's an assurance that when this king comes, he'll come with blood spotted, splattered apparel. You know, it's interesting that this is actually a a comfort for the Christian. And that's, it's a great, how about this? It's a greater comfort for Christians who are under the threat of death, who are in oppressed places where they're trampled and their lives are trampled and their sons and daughters are slain on account of Christ, that God doesn't let those things go. May I suggest that we live in an age of rage? Uh, we know how to be offended. <laughs> uh, offense and judgment are not foreign categories to the modern mind. We're just okay being offended and judging ourselves. We just don't want a God who is offended and judges. Oh, but he is high and he has a place to judge and he will and he'll do so justly. And I pray you'll be on his right side, not on account of your works, but on account of having joined yourself to the son.
A ninth assurance. He comes as a craftsman for his work. A short reflection, chapter 64, verse 8. It's hard to think of a closer relationship, is it not, than a father to a child or, or a potter to clay or an artisan to, to his or her arts. Those of you who are artists know this. There's you on the canvas. There's you in the sculpture. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. And you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. And when Jesus came, he came so that whoever believes in him could become a child of God. That is God's own possession, his workmanship, scripture says. And when he comes again, he will finish what he started in us. How comprehensive will the salvation be? A 10th assurance. When he comes, he'll make everything new. Chapter 65, verse 17. Here's how everything sounds. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Thank God. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her peoples to be a gladness. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. I used to have a friend, he'd say, what is your dominant emotion right now? (laughs) I should start asking that. I like that question. What is your dominant emotion right now? Um, I was always waiting for someone to just break down and cry. Uh, That wasn't exactly what he was after. It was a conversation starter. What is your most dominant, dominant emotion in the new creation? In a word, joy. And joy is God's most dominant emotion. And joy will be ours. Its length will be forever and its source will be God himself. He made humans for deep and lasting happiness and happy we will be. And in this new creation, we will be happy in him, but don't miss this. This is because he will be happy in us forever. It really is like marriage at its best. A bride is happy on her wedding day before her groom because he is happy in her. There is no happy bride who has a groom that is not happy in her or something is way twisted in that marriage. And likewise, the groom is happy because the face of his bride beams with joy in him. There's an eternal back and forth of joy forever, us and God and God and us that will reciprocate and keep going. And there won't be any competition in our hearts for him, thank God. And the quality of this joy will be absolutely pure. It's forever and it's perfectly pure because he's gonna remove all competition the things that make you sad and the tugs on your heart and the things that distract you and the cares of this world are all gone. No more shall there be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress, he says. No more infants who die in pain and cancer and being falsely accused and depression and loneliness and addiction. Hard work flushed down the toilet when the economy tanks. What makes you sad? You can't forget about it right now. It will be remembered no more in the new creation. Here's an image for you. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Verse 25. Remember how the Bible started? The serpent 
in the garden, tempts Adam and Eve to forsake God, and God promises that a son of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Verse 25, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is what we're, we're waiting for. Isaiah has come to us in three parts. And these three parts follow the pattern of Jesus' own life, his incarnation, the birth of a child who would be the king, his death and resurrection, the suffering servant who stands in for his people and takes all their sins and gives his righteousness to them. And now his return as a conquering king to judge and to rescue his people. In today's text, we found ourselves in much the same position as the original readers. Like them, we're experiencing the beginning of our salvation, but we're waiting for its completion. And it's a hard waiting. We need a vision of the one we're waiting for and all that he gives us. These are Peter's words to Christians in exactly our situation. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, hang on to this, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When Jesus came, he inaugurated this new creation. And when he comes again, he will bring it to its full completion. Who gets in? Well, here's a way to put it, an 11th assurance. He comes for those who tremble at his word. He comes for those who tremble at his word. 66, one through two. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you have built for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, takes ear to my word, which includes these words of warning and a verdict on our sin, but also these words of incredible hope Consider that under the preaching of the word and as much as this is the word of God that you're hearing and in the reading of the word, all eternity hangs on what you do with this king who is promised to come. Friends, I plead with you uh, to be converted. You'll remember the message of the book of Isaiah is a story of conversion, a city that begins in ruins, a picture of your own life a picture of my own life, a picture of humanity under Adam. But the story of Isaiah's prophecy ends with this vision of a city not forsaken, a city in whom is God's delight. How does the city from the beginning of the story, the book, become the city at the end? Well, right in the middle is one servant who comes, who suffers in the place of sinners to take all their sin away and give us his righteousness so that when God brings in a new creation and dissolves everything up that you and I see to make it new, we come out the other side. And this is why Jesus' resurrection from the dead is so crucial. 
For in his death, he takes away our sins, but in his resurrection, he's the firstborn from the dead for a new creation. And if you're joined to him, joined to him, joined to Jesus by faith, you die with him and you too one day will be raised with him to a full and new heavenly life. We've come to a new Jerusalem. This is the story of Isaiah. It's the story of the whole Bible and it can be your story. Entrust yourself to Jesus Christ who died for your sins. Join yourself to him and look forward with him to a new creation. What sort of people ought you to be, church, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming day of God and waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Thank God Jesus said these words at the end of the Bible. Surely I'm coming soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book of Isaiah and all that it is meant for us and all that it is meant to give to us. We pray that it would have its way with each of us and with our church, that we would be ourselves a foretaste, a foretaste of this new creation, for we are a people of this new creation. May we find our delight in you as we join ourselves to you. And may we take to heart all of these incredible assurances that you have given to us in these last chapters of Isaiah's prophecy. And may we revel in the truth that is ours, that we are your delight and we are a city not forsaken. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.